Hi, this is Anne Doherty, host of The Current, a podcast series hosted by Illum Advising. And today on our podcast, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Stephanie Troutman-Robbins and Dr. Eric Clements, both from the University of Arizona, to discuss the value of talking about race and gender and other identities in the workplace, and then thinking critically about the ways that we show up as individuals to our workplaces and to do the work that we do in service of our industry, and how discussions that focus on race and gender and other topics we don't usually invite into the workplace are good for us and help us be better colleagues and do better work. This um, podcast is also launching a series where we're inviting our Loom team to have conversations with each other about what it means to show up to the workplace with the history and um, set of experiences that define us as individuals and inform our identities. The goal of the podcast series really is to think through ways that we can approach our work in the workplace and in our industry with more empathy by talking about the many different ways we show up with different experiences and different histories and how these play out in power dynamics, in safety in the workplace, in professional growth, and also in what questions we ask in our research and in the work that we're doing. Uh, so with that, I'd like to quickly introduce our podcast um, uh, panelists, if you will, and then um, we'll jump into the conversation. So our first uh, podcast guest is Dr. Stephanie Troutman-Robbins. She serves as the department head of the Gender and Women's Studies Department at the University of Arizona. And Stephanie has a really interesting story, which you'll hear in a moment, that led her to uh, her role as the department head in, um, in this area. We also have Dr. Eric Clemens. Uh, Dr. Eric Clemens is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Arizona and like Stephanie had sort of an unconventional path to academia and he's also the co-chair of the trans studies department and full disclaimer I'm also married to Dr. Eric Clemens and I'm excited to bring him and invite him into my workplace if you will to have a conversation about uh, these topics as well. So with that we'll go ahead and kick off. Stephanie and Eric, it's great to have you here today. Thanks so much for having us. Awesome to be here, Anne. <laughs> I'm really excited for this conversation, I have to say. I've been looking forward to it all week. So before we jump into the heart of our discussion, I thought it would be nice to have you each uh, tell us a little bit more about yourselves. So let's start with you, Stephanie. Um, tell me a bit about yourself uh, how you arrived at your work and what it is that you do in your research. Uh, thanks, thanks, Anne. Um, so a little bit about my background. I am currently the chair of Gender Women's Studies um, and I am an associate professor of English. I am a first generation college student. And so I think for me, um, the work that I do is really it's interesting. It's in, in some way, you know, you can look back on your life and be like, oh, I see how this happened. But, you know, as I was sort of going along, it wasn't necessarily in my plan. I tell people that I'm an academic, that I accidentally ended up in academia. Um, number one, because I, I personally didn't really plan for that. 
And number two, just because as a black woman, first generation from my background, it's almost also feels like an accident that I'm in this space. Um, and so in the ivory tower, uh, so to speak. And so I don't know. I think for me, ultimately, uh, growing up, I think like, like most kids, uh, I wanted to be a celebrity. <laughs> this is before Instagram. So like not a social media influencer, but like a legit celebrity. And so, you know, thinking about like acting, dancing, I took music lessons, dance lessons. I thought I'd do something like in that realm. And then, you know, uh, as I got older, I really was interested in film and I took a film studies elective that was new in my high school uh, toward the end of my time there. And I knew I was college bound. So, but I didn't really know I could study film. And so the film class really kind of opened me up to that. And then when I got to college, I took a lot of, a lot of film studies kinds of classes and then I actually pursued um, an undergraduate degree in film at the University of Central Florida. So a lot of people don't know that about me. Um, so my undergraduate degree is actually in film and I went to a film school. Um, during that time though, I had already developed, I'd always loved English. I loved writing and reading and all of that. And so I ended up doing, um, getting two bachelor's degrees, a bachelor of science in film and screenwriting and a bachelor's in English literature. And then just sort of based on different like life choices, I um, I decided to become a teacher. Uh, that was supposed to be temporary for me. So it's like I finished my undergrad degree and I could either like go to graduate school to do more film stuff or specialize, or I could become an English teacher. And based on where I was in my personal life at that time, I was in a committed relationship. I was thinking about starting a family. I was in my early to mid twenties due to some delays along the undergraduate degree path. Um, and so, and also being a double major, just took longer. And uh, I ended up saying like, well, you know, let me for now take a job as an English teacher. There was a critical shortage of teachers in Florida at the time. And so you didn't need to be certified in education at all. Um, as long as you had a bachelor's degree, you could pretty much get a job. So I ended up being a public school teacher uh, English teacher, fell in love with it, changed my path, uh, and decided to get a master's degree in education. And so that has really, that kind of then, and then I added women's studies along the way, what's now gender and women's studies in many cases, but at the time it was just still women's studies. Um, and I ended up doing like, you know, my master's in ed and then continuing in the PhD. And I did a dual PhD decade ago now um, in at Penn State in a women's studies and curriculum and instruction. And I've always been interested in film and popular culture and schooling and education and sort of identity issues and how those are represented across the different spaces that we live in. Love that. It's such a, um, a cool story. And I love everyone's meandering paths because I think it's easy when you when you see someone like yourself who's so established in their career to assume that your path to that place was linear but to know that it was um, sort of crafted as you went through your life is a really interesting story to share um, and so um, Eric tell me a little bit about yourself how did you um, find yourself in the work that you're doing now what's uh, tell us a bit about your story yeah, so I'm an associate professor of anthropology, and that's not a job I ever knew anyone had. Um, when I was a kid, I knew I wanted to be a writer, 
but I was also like Stephanie, a first generation college student. So professor was also not a job that I thought was available to me. That was something that really smart people on the East Coast did. Um, and so um, I went to college because I was a good student and I enjoyed that, but I left college without really a sense of what I was going to do. But a transformative thing for me is right after college, I decided to transition. So I'm a trans man. And I, as part of that process for me, I started doing work at a drop-in shelter for trans youth in the Portland, Oregon area where I was living at the time. And it struck me just how different the experiences of those kids were from my own experience. And they weren't that much younger than me, but they had come of age at the time of the internet, which was just at the end, like I had just missed that, right? I remember being in the college lab and typing in the HTTP colon and going, what is that? Like, what is this thing? And so these kids who were just a few years younger than me had a completely different experience of being trans and being queer. And it made me want to learn more about that. And I was living in Portland, Oregon, which has the finest independent bookstore in all the land. And I thought, surely if I go to Powell's, I can learn all that I need to know about this phenomenon that I'm seeing around me. And it turns out that was not true. And so I decided that I wanted to write those books, that I would, I would become a person who studies this kind of thing. Um, and so I thought I wanted to be a sociologist because that's the only social science I knew the name of. Um, and when I went to, I applied for PhD programs and got into none of them, uh, not surprisingly, because one thing they don't tell first-generation college students is how to get into grad school. So it was a total mystery to me, and I did it all wrong. Now I can look back and see that, but I did get offered admission to an interdisciplinary master's program at the University of Chicago, and I knew that that was, could be a great step for me. So I went there and tried to sell myself to the sociologists who had no idea what I was talking about and said to me, how could we say anything meaningful about such a tiny little slice of the population? And my little balloon just totally deflated. And then I met an anthropologist. And when he was talking, I liked the kinds of questions he was asking. And I liked the way that he was approaching what he was talking about, even though it had nothing to do with my research interests, but I saw there a set of tools that I could use to ask the kinds of things I wanted to ask. And so I pursued a PhD and ended up um, being really interested in the medical side of, of transgender studies, which was not a word at the time. Um, and uh, mostly for me, that was because as a trans person myself, I was not interested in asking the questions that most often get asked of trans folks, which is why are you doing this to yourself? That to me was clear and obvious, so it was easy to ask a different and more vital set of questions, and so that's what my research has been about since then. Great. I um, I feel like there's so much to say and discuss for in a part two about what it means to be a first generation, you know, college student, but also first generation fill in the blank, you know, especially when we start moving into these professional spheres because there's so there's something so relatable about having to find one's own way when those paths aren't clearly laid out for you. And I, and I think some of that will touch on what we'll discuss too as we kind of go through this conversation. But picking up on um, something, the, a word you used, um, Eric, is the, the word uh, tools, the tools or ways of asking questions. And um, Stephanie, as we think about one of the topics we're covering in this podcast, uh, critical race theory or critical gender theory, can you talk to us a bit about what that is and what kind of tool it is for, for thinking or asking questions? 
So critical race theory really emerges as sort of the, I guess the best way to, to think about it um, would be to, to characterize it as sort of a, a scholarship and set of theories that really come out of a need to bring conversation around the civil rights movement, around the Black experience, around the social, the ways in which race has moved socially and historically and legally, right? All of those um, come are able to come together through the sort of lens of critical race theory. So critical race theory emerges at a time when the academy is starting to have departments or programs of like black studies and African-American studies. It's, you know, legal scholars, there's more legal scholars of color, right? Coming um, of age in a moment where they're pointing out how the law and how other policies are racist <laughs> essentially and how those things, you know, historically um, have been generated toward a racist end, right? And so you have sort of the convergence of a few things going on that all give rise to critical race theory. And you have folks in embedded in the academy sort of in traditional areas as maybe the only black scholar or person of color in their space um, who is also who are also at that time trying to like carve a lane, you know, in English that looks at, the, you know, the way in which the black experience becomes um you know, becomes uh, made viable through literature, through language practices. You've got legal scholars saying the law is racist and therefore these institutions that are governed by the law or whose policies and structures um, engage the law are also racist. And then you have scholars in other areas like sociology and anthropology and various places kind of coming together and wanting to explore through social, cultural, political, legal, all of those different uh, systems wanting to have a theory that sort of unifies the study of race in those different contexts. So I think that's the best way that we can kind of, I can think about the ways that critical race theory can be, uh, um, can be applied or how it's sort of its, its genesis. So as you're um, speaking to that, what types of questions are people asking themselves? If you were to sort of engage in critical race theory, what, what questions would one ask of, of the work? So I think in critical race theory, like there's a lot of questions we can ask, right? And I think right now, if I think of some of the trends that are happening, I know it's people asking, you know, how does race move online? How does, how does race work in the spaces of the internet and in virtual space? It's also about like how do black kids experience schools? How do schools function around racial dynamics? And what are the connections there? And I think there's so much that's come out of taking a critical race approach to schooling, right? It's really given a way to not just talk about segregation and systems of inequality, but it's also a way to talk about achievement, opportunity, you know, test scores, right? Like there's so many different conversations that are important that, have, you know, that gain focus when they're thought of or those questions are asked through that lens. So I think like, you know, there are many questions that critical race theory is asking, but we're really seeing in the last 10 or 15 years, these questions of policing and mass incarceration and, you know, reparations and schools, all of those are sort of interconnected. And then 
I think too, it, it gives space to have that conversation on critical whiteness and like reflecting on what does that mean? And also thinking about how activist spaces are, are moving in relation to racial questions in the larger society. Thanks, it's very helpful. And it helps to sort of clarify the ways in which these ideas start to make themselves more legible in the mainstream or outside of the academy, which we're, I think, very much seeing, as you mentioned now, and and particularly in activist spheres, but increasingly in more public discourse. Eric, what would be sort of the analogous way of thinking about critical gender theory to critical race theory? How how might one think about that and its relevance to um, understanding our world? I think that origin story that Stephanie told is helpful for for understanding a whole bunch of the the critical apparatus that really emerged in the United States and in Europe in the 1960s and 70s. And so you can imagine, for example, the crisis of leadership that happened in the 1960s. Vietnam was a failure and was was starting all kinds of um, movements to rethink the role of the government. You had the civil rights movement that threw into stark relief for many people who had never really thought about race before. Now it was a mainstream major news piece, the emergence of the feminist movement, the gay rights movement, the farm worker movement, indigenous movements to take back and have land recognition. All of this really sprung up in the 1960s as a result both of sort of the mainstream politics of the United States at the moment and then in Europe, in Berlin and in France, there were all kinds of popular social movements that really put students in the center and we're asking, young people were asking new types of questions about power and, and how it was related to their lives and to think more critically about it and to reject the received wisdom about who knows things, who's legitimate holder of power, who are the people we can trust. And all of a sudden, after decades and decades of that seeming quite consolidated, at least in the mainstream, um, kind of dominant Christian white society, all of a sudden, these were new questions that emerged. And so a lot of those same issues that Stephanie was pointing to that were centering race in gender theory and and in emergent feminist movements were centering the questions of gender. So they were about how to denaturalize gender. And so when I say that, I mean, we oftentimes think of gender and sex and race and all these other categories that we use to, uh, to identify people as being natural categories that are given in advance So there's such a thing as femininity, it existed before you were born, and now you're just an instance of it. And everybody else who's in the category of the feminine is an instance of this thing that pre-existed us. When you think about things that way, it can make it really difficult to intervene in them, because if they're given by nature, there's nothing one can do about things that are given by nature. Um, And so really what um, gender theory and critical gender theory works to do is to, to move that the categories of gender, so masculinity, femininity, maleness, femaleness, and all the things that coalesce around that, move that out of the category of the natural and put it into the category of the historical and the social. Because once it's in the historic and social category, we can work on it. So far as it's kept in the natural category, that's given by nature and it's, you know, that sort of thing. So we can break that down in all kinds of ways, but I think that's the fundamental move is to denaturalize who counts in these various categories, turn them into historical products and turn them into contextual and cultural products, which then we can see as being the object of our intervention. We can do something about them when they're on that side of the line. 
Is there anything you want to add to that, Stephanie? Um, no, I think Eric did a really great job of also bringing in sort of the global perspective and the European movements and thinkers that also give rise to sort of this set of critical theories more generally, more broadly, and then thinking about how these other groups began to take those sort of more critical ways of thinking about power and knowledge production and social orders, right, um, and applying these other uh, kinds of conditions like race, like gender, like sexuality. So yeah, not much to add. Thanks for the additional context there, Eric, because these things are, are you know, they are historical and they are situated. And so it's important to understand that they have a relationship to each other and they've, there's been, you know, crossover influence as well. And, you know, I'm going to keep you with me, Stephanie, for a minute and um, jump to a question that is a little off script, but I think all of our listeners are asking themselves, right, which is, why are we even talking about this? Like, hey, Anne, why did you decide to have this conversation as part of a discussion on energy and a discussion about the workplace? And um, so I would love to hear your perspective on the relevance of talking about these critical theories or inviting them into conversation when we're talking about things like work or when we're talking about things like um, a term that's used a lot in our industry is sort of a just transition towards clean energy. So making sure everybody's involved. How are these um, conversations material or relevant to those projects? I mean, I think that these, to me, right, I mean, these are the converse, these conversations and thinking about critical race theory, critical gender theory, um, to me, it's relevant just in, in a general sense, right? So that's one of the projects that one of the things I always struggle with about being in the academy is, you know, when I come outside of the academy, I take a lot of things for granted and I make certain assumptions. And when I'm in a place where people are not respecting people's pronouns or things are like labeled a certain way, I'm like, what? I'm like all upset and astonished, but I realize then I, it, it's like my wake up, like my reminder to like, oh, you know, while the Academy has problems, that's undoubtedly, um, <laughs> that's a different podcast. Um, there's, you know, in some ways there, there, we do have access, right? There, we do have privilege and access to certain kind of knowledge production and cutting edge research and conversations, right? With other like sort of scholars and intellectuals and whatever. And so, you know, um, one of the real, to me, one of the really important things is that those conversations move more quickly out of um, that space and into spaces where other people, into public discourse, right? Into spaces where people can engage meaningfully with these concepts and ideas so that, you know, we don't end up, you know, in the old kind of parlance of preaching to the choir or just like staying in our little spaces and zones with the other people that share the this knowledge. I mean, the, you know, the idea is to disseminate that, to invite other voices to the conversation and to not, you know, um, whatchamacallit, to not perpetuate or recreate the very conditions that led to a, the development of these theories in the first place. Um, and so I think that, you know, this conversation, these, these theories, um, are meaningful outside of, of the academic space need to need to find their place in, in these uh, areas as well more quickly. And I think that for different industries and different sort of um, different companies and organizations, you know, organizations are made up of people. At the end of the day, we're talking about humans and we're talking about folks, right? And so 
people carry these identities, people have these ideas, people have these experiences. And I think by acknowledging them, by talking across difference, by even having some debate or conflict uh, around these issues and areas, it's also an opportunity for people to bring other parts of their identity and experience and perspective to the work. And, you know, we can all be trained in a field, whether that field is energy or library science, whatever it may be, but we, like Eric and I told our story at the beginning, we got there somehow, right? So even if we all left with an energy degree, we didn't get there the same way, you know? And so to have that part of the conversation and really realize how that strengthens one's position or influences the way a person thinks about a project, right? Like all of those things, we could just be having such a more robust and engaged um, community experience in our jobs and in our lives. And since so many of us spend so much of our time thinking about our job or doing our job, why not be able to bring other parts of our whole selves and extend that to the other people that we're spending so much time and space and energy with? That's great. You know, there's a, um, I think a move that's really happening in the workplace right now. And you see this in like Harvard Business Review and you see it in all these sort of um, business publications around bringing one's full self to the workplace or thinking about um, really acknowledging the differences within your team and and many um, economic arguments, for example, about um, having diversity as a sort of asset. Um, When we even step back from those arguments, because I think we could get into those arguments and they can be sometimes a bit problematic. So I just kind of want to acknowledge that. But Eric, if we were to sort of step back from those arguments, what is the um, value of kind of um, bringing these tools into discussion in the workplace um, to help facilitate those dialogues that Stephanie was referring to, that that sharing, that um, creating space for um, uh, conversations across difference? Uh, I mean, I, I think, the, like Stephanie was saying, there's lots of things that happen in the academy and they get stuck there and they stay there. And there are lots of things in our daily jobs that really are meant for our peers. They're not meant for other people. But as we were talking about at the beginning, these theoretical toolkits came out of, of activism and they came out of people's desire to improve systems that they saw to be inherently unjust and unfair. And so the tools that are coming that we're talking about from these critical theories are meant to be used outside of books and they're meant to be used outside of articles and outside of lecture halls. And so, you know, usually when I'm talking to my students who are frustrated by learning theory, they, why are we learning theory? We don't understand the value of this. And what I usually say and what I think really applies in this situation is that if you see that you have a problem, you can't intervene until you understand what the problem is, until you how you can diagnose the problem. So if you're looking around your workplace and you're going, man, we have a whiteness problem. Or you're looking around your workplace and saying, man, we have an all men in the executive suite problem. If you don't have any tool to understand why that's happening, then there's no possible way that you're going to come up with a solution that can address it. And so what these kinds of tools are doing are saying, what are some ways we can look at the situation that, that helped us to arrive at this problem, however, whatever that problem is for your organization? How did we arrive here? And where could we intervene differently in order to affect an outcome that we want to see? 
Because if you don't step back and apply these kind of critical thinking tools to the problem, you're probably going to just reproduce, as Stephanie says, reproduce the exact same thing that got you there, maybe with some swag on the side with new branding on it or something, but it won't be meaningful change until you have the tools to look meaningfully at the problem. And so to me, that's what the benefit is. It says, here's how you diagnose your problem such that you could intervene in a way that actually solves it. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a um, a really important point. And um, just as a caveat, no one's coming for your swag, listeners. So you're still still cleared for the, the logo branded highlighters and golf towels. Um, so, you know, Stephanie, we've enlisted um, Visceral Change and who you work with to support our organization and thinking more critically about ourselves. Um, one thing I think as a, um, a leader and also as someone who has the benefit of like living with Eric and being surrounded by academics um, like yourself, that um, you, it's easy to sort of believe that you, you kind of get it, you know it, and that the work doesn't need to continue because surely with all this education, you're going to kind of figure it out. Um, but we know that that's not true, right? We know that in some ways, as you said really eloquently uh, to our team, this is a practice. This is a way of like continuing to get better, do better, be better. Um, so, you know, when we think about the conversations you with a visceral change are facilitating in the workplace, uh, how might we think about that practice of sort of getting better and doing better as, or as organizations? Um, you know, and, and really working to make it sort of an integral part of what we do versus just like a one-off thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question, Anne, and I think that's the, really the move or the turn that I would like to see happen, and it's funny how, you know, in some ways, again, like organizational design and, and leadership and that is not necessarily my area, but I feel like because of the issues I work on, it sort of just kind of on its own organically developed as a space where I started to be invited. And so I like the fact that I can be in that space and I don't necessarily bring like a business or HR or organizational psych kind of approach to it. Although I think that that approach is, is definitely also important and significant and there's some good research there. But uh, my approach to it is definitely more one of like a teacher and a practitioner and sort of an applied kind of person. And I think that, you know, it's important for these conversations to, like you said, to not be a one-off. The change that I would like to see in the space is one that, you know, I'm also seeing a lot on wellness, right, in the workplace. Um, and so, you know, this, this sort of ecological approach, in my opinion, like the wellness piece intersects with understanding the identities of folks in the space and it, and it intersects with understanding, you know, theoretically, what is the sort of social, political climate and, and makeup of, of this environment, right? And so this is where I see, you know, the interventions are needed and what I hope will happen is that, you know, folks will Will, will be willing to do this work like together on behalf of an organization that they're part of and that they can contribute in and that they care about, but also to, to do it at that personal level. So to me, it's sort of like, 
I can take these tools and I can apply them in the context of this workspace to address some of the issues or problems like Eric was pointing out, to understand those differently and to maybe position myself differently in relation to solving them or to help grow things that I think you know are, are missing. It might not be a problem in that it needs to change, but it could even just be a gap. And how do we address that? How do we understand that? And then, so I think that these, you know, the work is important in that way, but also that, you know, we take that, that personal, uh, that personal kind of make that personal commitment to doing the work as well, so that it just becomes something that folks are doing in their daily life and bringing to the space as an asset, an additional asset, cultural, social, however we want to think of it. And also so that it's something that we can do together on behalf of our space. I love that. That's great. And I, I like your framing of um, thinking about it as an asset within the workplace and a, almost a, a competency of sorts and thinking about how we, how we represent ourselves and think about problems and engage with each other. There's also, um, Eric, this piece that's implicit in all of these discussions that I think comes forward in the workplace more than many other places in our lives, which is the sort of idea of power and understanding that and how it plays out differently depending on who you are in a space and what you represent in a space. Um, you know, organizations are inherently hierarchical. Um, you know, as much as we try to dismantle that, they all sort of bring with them a certain level of hierarchy. And those things can sort of compound or complicate all of these other power dynamics that enter the workplace um, from outside of sort of the auspices of the office. So can you talk a little bit about um, how these ways of thinking help us also think about power dynamics and our relationships to them in the workplace to sort of, to Stephanie's point, um, kind of more wellness or, or you know, sort of a, a sense of belonging? Yeah, again, this is, as Stephanie said, not my area of expertise in particular, but in general, we can talk about, you know, in that denaturalization process that I was describing at the beginning, you can say, well, if we were to look at, let's say, an, orga an organizational chart of an of a institution somehow, you could say, well, this is how power works in this institution. The people at the top do this thing to this level, and then it moves down, and the people at the bottom are least empowered. That kind of model imagines a neutral human, right? That's not actually any person in a job. Those are the roles of the job. But we all know from our real lives that who's in a particular role changes what they actually do, how much power they actually have, and how it gets exercised. And so once you start putting real people into these charts, the top-down model of power simply doesn't make any sense anymore. Instead, you have a power that's shifting depending on the person in whatever their position is. Also, I can have a lot of power in one one situation in my life, and then in the very next minute be powerless. Not because I have changed per se, but because the, the dynamic that I'm in has changed. So one really easy example is I, um, as a trans man, I look like a white dude and get read that way all the time. And I have a certain set of privileges and powers that go along with that, that oftentimes I'm not aware of because it's just my normal life. But as soon as I'm put in a position as a trans person, I'm now not protected by federal employment standards, for example. Or if my status as trans is made visible to other people, then I'm at risk of violence or other forms of discrimination. So 
I can have a lot of power in one way and none in another, and I can, that dynamic changes over and over. So I think an awareness of the particularities of how histories and biographies complicate things like top-down organizational models into being really dynamic spaces that where power is moving in all kinds of ways at different times. And I think that's such an important comment that it's not static, you know, and that part of, um, to Stephanie's point, this sort of critical practice of understanding and learning is reckoning with that constantly and learning enough to know when you're in the room, what you're bringing into the room with you, you know, what you're representing in many ways. You know, to Eric's point, I think one of the, some of the values, right, that, that came out of at least my training in my master's degree program, which is very much applied, like an, a literacies K-12 approach, but the sort of values and ethos of that particular program um, was that they wanted you, two of the things that really stuck with me and made sense for me were that they wanted you to be a lifelong learner and they wanted you to be a change agent. And I feel like if those become the values that most organizations adopt, and I don't mean through just like a meaningless PD, check it off. Um, I mean, like really try to embody an ethos of like, we want to be change agents and we want to be lifelong learners. Then it's like, that makes it so much easier if that's part of the organizational values to bring in these conversations, to have them, to make them an important part of like an integral part, you know, of what, of what we're doing in the space. And because like Eric said, I mean, it's complicated, right? It's not just, again, like in, a, in the space of being, you know, in the space of a day, you could go through all these different shifts in how you're perceived and what your power is. And while in some spaces I'm really respected because of my title and my education, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't make me less afraid if I'm pulled over, you know, by the police as a black woman. And I'm like, okay, let me make sure I have all my stuff that they're going to ask for. Let me think about how I want to talk to this person. And, you know, while I don't have to necessarily worry about that in the same way when I'm, you know, on campus or in particular kind of academic spaces. So I think, right, understanding that in the workplace, you have all these different identities and experiences happening as well um, is really important. Yeah, I appreciate that. And to show and to understand as, as colleagues, and um, I, we, I like to use the term co-conspirators in, in change, you know, or in the work that, um, that, you know, everyone is showing up with something, right? And something different than your something and to make space for that and have empathy for that because we also bring all of these feelings and all these experiences also from the outside world into the workplace, then there needs to be room to, to sort of process that. Um, so I want to shift the discussion a little bit and talk about the practice of being a researcher and how these theories can come into play there. We, um, as you all know, are a research firm that, you know, that's where our bread and butter is. We provide consulting and strategy, but at our core, you know, Loom is a, a, a research firm. We take a lot of pride in, in developing ways of knowing and sort of understanding the world that we engage with. So when we think about um, thinking about like critical race theory, thinking about dynamics of power, thinking about gender, how does engaging with this material help us become better researchers 
you know, in practice since we're gathering information and intelligence. So Stephanie, do you want to take a crack at that question? Sure. Um, I think in terms of, you know, engaging with these, these uh, areas, these theories, I mean, I do think it brings a different, it opens up some different possibilities in the, re- in, in, in a few different ways. And the kind of, in the research, the way that we approach it, um, and I think also in the kind of research, right, that we try to compile and what we might want to include. And so I think, you know, one of the really baseline kind of things that women's studies did early on was asking folks to evaluate their syllabus. So for if you're a teacher, go to your syllabus, see what you're teaching, how much of it is taught by women. Well, there was a time where, and um, sadly, there's probably still some people out here um, with you know, with no women, right, represented in their syllabus. And what does that tell, you know, tell the students or tell people in class? Well, that either women are not important um, or that women have not made any contributions that are significant in this field, right? And so, and then it just sort of reifies these other beliefs, um, generalizations, et cetera, about women, ultimately sexist beliefs that are also not true often, right? And so I think, and the same can be said, we can ask that same question. Well, how many queer scholars, how many trans scholars, how many indigenous scholars, like who, who is on your, who's on your playlist, you know? And, and I think that as researchers in thinking that we can do that same kind of exercise, like, hmm, as I'm pulling data, as I'm looking at things, where is it coming from? And not, and not just in the sort of like, let's make sure it's valid and reliable, but like on top of that, who is producing this information, who has access to this maybe great set of data that was funded by some giant, you know, grant, like what are the politics of that? So just as researchers, it gets us also thinking about some of the ways in which, you know, folks have access and opportunity to even talk about certain knowledges, to even get their work out there, to even have research that can be found and applied, right? So I mean, there's that piece of it. And then I think also as researchers, we were able to, if we think about some of these critical theories and we think about identity, we're able to also look for the ways that it shows up in the research that we are dealing with, you know? And so I think that's, those are sort of some of the off the top ideas that come to mind in that regard. The, um, the comment that you made about uh, sort of who's producing this information and thinking critically about where things are coming from is such an important one because I think we tend to, one tends to think that data in particular numbers are neutral, right? That they don't come from somewhere. And you see this play out in all of these complicated ways in the world. One interesting example that's emerged say in the past few years is the racial bias and um, face recognition software, you know, who's writing that code, who is, what is the face that is being modeled for that recognition, how, how has that then created a different experience for different users, and, you know, so, and then as a result, who actually has access to that technology, right? So a few years back before, like, there was the, the, G, the GPS we know now, I was still using like a Garmin, you know, the little like external GPS, like five, six years ago, maybe seven years ago. And I was driving in New York. And at a certain point, the GPS told me to turn on Malcolm the 10th Boulevard. And so this is a clear, now listen, I was in, you know, 
I was in Bed-Stuy. So there, there was no, there's no Malcolm the 10th in Bed-Stuy, right? It's Malcolm X. And so just a very simple thing that like myself and like my friend in the car, like we cracked up and laughed about that forever. Um, but that goes to your point, right? Like who writes the software? What, how are they interpreting, you know, the information? And like maybe in a different geography, there is a Malcolm the 10th Boulevard, but not in Bed-Stuy. <laughs> I love that. That's hilarious. And it's, and you see that too. And just that, you know, like, again, like the um, competency and programs and sort of the pronunciation of different names and, and how that's done and, and all of that. And Eric, this is kind of something that you dig into a lot in, in your work. So you often are looking at the intersection of these ideas with science and technology. So as a, as a team, like in our company, we also spend a lot of time talking about technologies and how they live in the world and how to make them sort of viable in the social world. And what, what do these conversations bring to that, that dialogue? Yeah, I mean, as Stephanie was talking, I was reminded of this great book by Sophia Noble called Algorithms of Oppression, which is about how Google, I mean, Google's job is to collate all of the information that it gets from us about the things we ask and the things we look for and the things we find and we want, and then keep directing us to that. And what the what Noble's book is about is, is specifically anti-Blackness, but the kinds of things that people search for then determine what they're going to get. And so when you have a social milieu that's already reflecting anti-Blackness, then Google just does that for you double plus. It just makes it easier for you to find that stuff. And so um, that's just one, a, another example of this, how technology like data, as you say, Anne, is often imagined to be neutral. It's neutral. It's people that ruin it, right? Well, technology is produced by people. I mean, and, and there's never a moment at which it's, that's not the case. And this artificial learning that people often say will save us all, right? It's learning from the existing beliefs that are out there. So we can look all at, at the history of technology to see all kinds of examples where what's imagined as the end user of some technology or tool is also considered to be neutral. But if you look in deeper, then you'll see that that neutral person is actually the exact same kind of person who made the technology. They assume themselves to be the universal producer and the universal user of everything. And the, the famous example that I'm sure you guys hear in your industry all the time is the setting the thermostat at 68 degrees in office buildings because men wore three-piece suits in office buildings and they were very hot. Well, you can walk around an office building and see lots of women with sweaters on in the middle of the summer, especially here in Arizona, because it's so cold, right? That's assuming the neutral body is a man's body of a certain class that needs to be tended to by the entirety of the building environment. So there's all kinds of examples of that type of thing. And so anthropologists are always interested in this idea of whose story is the story that's being told and how can we think critically about that process. So science and technology studies scholars look at a litany of different examples of how technologies are produced to do one thing but get used to do something quite different. And I think that's one of the great benefits of ethnographic research is that you see not just what something was intended by its designers to do, but what its actual life looks like in practice. And that's informed by a number of different factors. Um, education, time, place, 
the, uh, someone's ability to understand even what the initial uh, intention of the technology was at all, whether they got it new, whether they got it used, how they use it, all of this stuff that if you look in the owner's manual, you'll never, never see, but in, that's what makes up the fabric of people's real experiences with these things. This is such a, um, a great framework, and I will tell you one funny story, too, where we were at a conference, an energy conference, an energy efficiency conference, no less, where we actually studied thermostats and set points and building efficiency, and they were literally passing out blankets to all of the women in the conference to, you know, um, warm themselves, essentially, because the settings were so low. But, the, you know, therein was like the irony and then also the challenge because the building operators are instructed to do something a certain way. And there's a whole culture around that. And you can't just go around a conference facility and start turning down the thermostats, you know. So it's um, <laughs> so there are all of these different things in play, as you say, that um, well predate like, the workforce as we know it, you know, um, that's become, the, as you said, sort of the cultural artifacts of um of a way of thinking about a problem like space conditioning. Um, you know, this has been such a wonderful conversation and I, I love everything about it. And I, I think one of the things that, uh, that as you all are talking and I hope that the folks listening to this understand is that part of engaging in these conversations about race, about gender, about class, about uh, disabilities, all of these things are about creating ways of understanding the world and knowing the world so that we can create better workplaces and that we can create, be better researchers, better participants, or Stephanie, to use your language, change agents in meeting the, the sort of greater goals of our industry. And I will say for myself, you know, um, having the benefit of working with um, Stephanie and the Visceral Change team, it can feel really scary to sort of start the conversations in the workplace because you spend so much time being coached around compliance and not saying the right thing and being the sort of perfect leader or creating the perfect environment. And, it, you know, introducing that discomfort can be so beneficial in making sure that we, again, to use um, some of the language, Stephanie, that you use, bring that sort of practice and competency and, um, uh, you know, skill into our lives so that we can do better work ultimately. Um, so I just want to thank you both so much for uh, letting me um, participate in this conversation with you and to hear um, your perspectives, because I know that those listening will find a lot of value in them. We can look back historically and see all these things that deliberately have been put in place to keep certain people out. And you can sort of think about that as like building a brick wall. And so if you want to let those people in, you don't just stop building the wall. You have to actually take it down. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you both. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us on our podcast today. I hope you gained some value from these conversations and are going to step bravely into harder conversations in the workplace so that we can do better and be better. Again, Current is produced by Illum's production team and music by Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you are well. Stay tuned for our next set of podcasts where, we team, where our team talks to each other about these issues and we look forward to talking to you next time. Take care.